The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Plenty of things that are just fine fail to quench this kind of particular thirst. There is only one thing that does that. That's what we're going to look at today. We're in John chapter 7. We're still working through the book of John. We've been seeing a number of different things. The writer is holding up Jesus for us, showing him, diff- showing him to us in different angles. And we're seeing chapter after chapter that he's very intriguing. He's very interesting. He's very attractive. He's very difficult sometimes. It's been a theme for the last couple of chapters in 6 and then the beginning of chapter 7 when we came to the Feast of Booths. What he says is intriguing and it's difficult. It's attractive, but it's hard. Today we're going to see that again with Jesus talking about thirst. It's attractive, it's kind of difficult, but boy, you want it. Today's passage is a long one. We're in chapter 7, verses 25 to 52. So I'm going to go right to that. I'm going to read the whole section. And we'll go back through it. I'll hit some of the high points to make sure we understand the details and can see some of the passage. Then I'm going to focus on just a couple of main issues. So let me read John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, hearing what Jesus had just said about make a right judgment, and he'd been talking with them about the law up before. When some heard that, they said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not be able to find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast... The great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. No one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Jesus is still at the Feast of Booths where he arrived last week, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. We saw him there teaching that you must judge him correctly. Stop judging on a superficial level and make a right judgment. It was the end of last week's passage. When they heard this, some of the people of Jerusalem, remember the crowds that have flowed into the city for this feast are, are quite a varied group. There are some locals from the city and from the surroundings. There are the rulers, the authorities who are after him. And then there are a whole bunch of people from any distance traveling in who have maybe heard a little bit about Jesus but don't really know him and are a little more sympathetic. These are some of the people from Jerusalem, some of the locals, and they know there's a plot. They know people are out to get him, and so they say, you know, here he is. He's right here. Why is anybody doing anything about this? I wonder, is, is that because the authorities have changed their minds or they come to a different conclusion? Is he the Christ? There's a little glimmer of hope there. But that's dashed in verse 27. It can't be. We know where this guy comes from. Now, they're not really referring to his birthplace. Later we see that they know he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. What they mean is... We know too much about him. We know his story. They're reflecting a commonly held belief at the time that when the Messiah came, he would appear as a deliverer. The first public things he would do would be these great things of delivering the people. Jesus has been around for a couple years by now, walking around, baptizing, teaching, performing miracles, but also hanging out and eating lunch and doing very normal things. We know too much about him, and we've seen too much of him. This can't be the Christ, they conclude. Jesus hears that, and he responds, proclaims, actually, verse 28, you know me, and you know where I'm from. That could be a statement, or it could be a question. Not really sure how he is nuanced there, but either way, it's intended to be a jab of sorts. Oh, sure, you know me, but you don't have any idea who I am. You know that I came here from Galilee, but you don't even know that I came to Galilee from Bethlehem, and you sure don't know that I came to Bethlehem down from heaven above. And I came from heaven to Bethlehem to Galilee to right here, right now, to speak to you about something. And I have not come here on my own decision or my own idea or my own authority. I come sent from God, God whom you do not know. There's that hard button again. He's always pressing the hard button. He never lets up on that. I am sent by God, sent from Him on His authority, proclaiming His message to His glory. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Moses and David and Isaiah. The God of my Father. The God you have no idea about. He's speaking to Jews who love, theoretically, love these Scriptures, love this God. And He says, you don't know Me, and so you don't have any idea who He is. Period. If you don't know Jesus properly, you don't know who the Father is. 
He calls them on that, and surprise, surprise, many of them don't like that, and they seek to arrest him. But nobody lays a hand on him. John's common way of reminding us of God's sovereign control over the situation. Some are really irritated, and yet some are intrigued. They say, I don't know about him, but when the Christ does come, would he do more than this? I don't know. So they believe in some sense. There's this division among the people. And the Pharisees hear about this. They hear there's a division. Some are wanting to seize him by mob action. Some are kind of warming up to him, causing a stir in the city. And so they decide, we've got to close this thing down. And they finally issue the official arrest warrant. They send the temple guards, the police, to arrest him. The temple police would have been all Levites. These are all religious men. They're not army soldiers. They're not mercenaries. They're not Romans. They would be Jews, and they would be Levites, religious men. They're charged with taking care of the temple and the surrounding area. And those are the people who are under the authorities of the Pharisees and and the Sanhedrin in general, the Jewish rulers. They send them out go get Jesus. And so we're left with that, and we move over to Jesus, hearing that the warrant has been issued, and they're after him now. Jesus issues this cryptic statement, verse uh, 30, or is he 33 there? He issues this statement and he says, I'm only going to be here a little while longer and then I'm leaving. He's referring to the cross, but they don't understand that. And so they ask, what does that mean? He's leaving. Is he going to the, the Mediterranean world? He's not just informing them, you know, the cross is coming and I'm departing might look like that, but there's a little loaded warning in here, a little loaded judgment. I'm leaving, and a time is going to come when you will seek me out. You know, now people are seeking me to arrest me. There's going to be a time when you are going to seek me, and you're really going to want to find me for a different reason, but you won't be able to. You're going to wish that you could be where I am, but you won't be able to be with me. That time is coming. They, don't, they misunderstand that, but John floats that out here for us to see, and then he repeats it in the question that the, that the Jewish people who hear this ask, what does this mean? He's going to go, we're going to wish that we could be with him, but we won't be able to be with him. What does that mean? It's kind of floated out there to you and left. It moves on then. It comes to Jesus. Here's, here's where some of the background of the Feast of Booths would be helpful to understand what Jesus says here. 37 and following. The Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles, takes its name from the little structures built, little booths or little tents that were built by the pilgrims who came into the city at this time, and they lived in them for the seven days of the, of the festival. And it's commemorating a couple different things. It's commemorating the way that God provided for them in the wilderness, and so they build structures like they built back then as they wandered around for 40 years. They're celebrating God's provision of food and water for them, They're celebrating God's provision for them right now because this was held right around the time of the fall harvest. And they're looking forward to God's great provision for them in the future. When Messiah would come, all of God's provision would be upped. It would become perfect and full. And so they were remembering, they were celebrating, and they were looking forward. All in the same thing here during this festival. So they do various things, lots of different ceremonies and rites. And one of them was the water drawing or the water pouring ceremony. That's what this passage right here connects to. Priests, every day, would go to the pool of Siloam, which was south of the temple. They would draw out water, and they would carry it to the temple. And there are crowds lining all the streets between the pool and the temple. 
shouting out praises and rejoicing in God, celebrating His provision, looking forward to His future provision. They would sing the Psalms. And as the priests carried this water to the temple, as they got to the altar, as the Psalm, eight, Psalm 118 was sung, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, His steadfast love endures forever, the priests would pour out the water at the altar. In the day, it was used to recount how God had provided water, poured out water for them from the rock in the desert, and how God would pour out the water of healing from Messiah in the future that would run over the land, a common image in the prophets. And they did that day after day until the last and greatest day of the feast. Either right at the moment when the priests poured it out or just after it when they'd stopped, at that point, Jesus stood and said, Hey! In a loud voice, He cries out, This right here is pointing to Me. This pouring out of the water, it's pointing to Me. If you're thirsty, come right over here and I'll pour a river into you. It's a stunning statement. Got their attention. People respond to it in a number of different ways. They're divided. Some think, He has to be the guy. He has to be the Christ, or at least the prophet who was to precede the Christ. I mean, look at him. He's constantly doing and saying stuff. He must be. And others said, he can't be, though. can't be. We read Micah 5. He's supposed to be from Bethlehem. This guy's not from Bethlehem. Kind of held out there for us again, because everybody reading this book knows he's from Bethlehem. Everybody except them. And they didn't bother to look into it. And so confusion reigns. And meanwhile, the guards returned to the chief priests, the Levites, empty-handed. These Levites are religious men, and they stand there, they see all of this, and they're not just task-oriented, must arrest Jesus. They care about the Bible, they care about these things. And so they're there on a mission, seeing what's going on, seeing this ceremony, the celebration, Jesus' declaration, and they're torn. Just like the crowd's divided, they're divided. They come back... Where's Jesus? And, you know, didn't you get the message? <sighs> we couldn't pull the trigger on that one because have you ever heard him teach? We stood there with the warrant in hand, the handcuffs, and we heard him teach. And have you ever heard him teach? No one teaches like that. With that kind of authority and power and insight. And the Pharisees blast them, revealing their bias. They have no interest in listening to him teach anymore. They want him arrested, and they want him killed. Even Nicodemus, who speaks up in, in the name of simple fairness, gets put down. That's the text. It's a long one, winds here and there. There's a lot of different things happening in it. I'm going to focus in on the pinnacle of this passage, Jesus' statement in verses 37 to 39. Focus in on that, and then the response of the people to him all throughout. So this is the two basic points, something about Jesus and something about response. And together, I'd summarize them in this whole passage, and this statement is the overarching theme for this morning. Judge carefully. Judge carefully. Jesus is the only one who can quench thirst. The only one. Judge him carefully. Make a wise, right judgment about Jesus because he has something. He has something to give to people that we all desperately need. 
We all need it. It only comes from Him, so make a right judgment. Be careful. Two basic points towards that. Something about Jesus, something about us. Let's start with Jesus. The most significant thing we see about Jesus here in this passage, and as I think about this, this has to be one of the most significant things in all of life. This, this gets at the heart of where we live, of who we are. Most significant thing here, Jesus was sent to quench thirst. He was sent to quench thirst. This is the kind of thirst that we are all familiar with. Not a physical thirst, but a spiritual, a heart-level thirst. We talked about this before, back in chapter 4, when Jesus spoke with the woman at the well there. This is a common image used throughout the Old Testament by the prophets to describe part of the human condition of longing, of wanting something, of yearning for something, looking in here. Thirst is the most relentless of human desires. Physically speaking, you can go without food a whole lot longer than you can go without water. Thirst drives us to fulfill it, drives us to quench it. Physically, that's true in our bodies, and it happens in our hearts. We walk through life looking, looking for something, missing something, never quite being able to grab it, reaching for this, that's not it, reaching for this, that's not quite it either, this must be it, it doesn't last. We're looking, we're looking, we're looking for something to be fixed, to made right, be made right, to be made whole, to be completed. Really hard to put your finger on. Often we don't know what we're looking for, but we know we're looking for something. Searching, thirsting, something needs to be remedied. I think of it kind of like this. I have this longing in my heart. We have this longing in our heart, and it's like there's this electrical cord that comes out of our heart, and on the end has this plug, these really odd-shaped prongs on it. And we carry this plug in hand all through life, and everywhere we turn, we are constantly turning everything that we encounter into a plug of sorts and trying to stick this into an outlet, trying to stick this plug into it. It just doesn't quite fit, though. We're driven to get plugged in. We thirst for the juice to come into us and meet that need. But everywhere we turn, it's not quite right. You think, maybe if I kind of turn this one upside down, maybe it's one of those different shapes I can do like this if I bend it a little bit or if I kind of force that prong over move over here and I need some tape to get it to hold in there I look for an adapter all different things we're trying to do to make this plug hold and it just doesn't it might stay there for a little while and then it falls out again you try to get it plugged into other people and if you put on a facade and, and have this life of the party attitude, or maybe you're the tough guy or something, you put on some facade, and people will accept you and respect you to some degree. You'll have some certain status in their eyes, but you know inside you're faking it. It's empty. Maybe you try to plug into, chase after, and attain some sort of accomplishment, in the, in, say, in the classroom. And, and you get it a little bit, and the teachers approve of you, and your classmates respect you, and colleges want you. But you know that if you fail, you stop performing, all that goes away. They don't care about you. They care about what you can do. That's not it either. That's not what you're looking for either. So maybe you strive for prestige and money and power, and say in the job or in community service or in political activism or something 
you attain some status or, or money and you buy your heart's desires, all the money and all, all the gadgets and car and home you could ever hope for. But one night you're sitting at this really fancy party and you realize that all the beautiful crystal and flatware in China is just metal, glass, and ceramic. And it cannot fill your throbbing heart. What can? What is capable of giving life to your heart? What is? You have this odd-shaped plug and a world full of outlets, and it doesn't stick in any of them. Nothing here in the world works. Not at all or for very long. You're thirsting, you're looking for something, for rest, for peace, for that, ah, it's not followed ten minutes later by, ugh. You're looking for that. People have always looked for it. God's Old Testament people, Israel, longed for it. And so through the prophets, God foretold the great and glorious day when that hope would be finally met. There was a day coming. So he spoke to this thirst again and again and again. Take the words of Isaiah. There was a day coming when you won't be like a parched desert, but instead, you people, you can and you will become like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. It's Isaiah. God held that out to them through the prophets and called them then. More words from Isaiah. Called people, if you're thirsty, come. Anyone who thirsts, come to the waters with joy. Draw out water out of the wells of salvation. That's coming. It's in the future. Messiah shall come. Thirst shall be quenched. Longing shall cease. Fullness shall reign. It is coming held out there, hoped for. And so, day after day at this feast, year upon year, the priests go and get the water. They carry it up to the altar. They pour it out and they say, when will it come? When will this happen? That God will pour out the water of blessing of the age of Messiah on us and quench all of our thirst forever. He did it a little bit back then. We remember that. We celebrated. When is that going to happen? And Jesus stood up and said, right now. Me, glorious. Come to me if you're thirsty. Come. I will pour into you, not dribbles of water, rushing torrents. God, the Holy Spirit, in you. Come to me and I'll give that to you. He's making something very clear. There is one outlet right over there in the corner behind that great big piece of clutter in your room. Move that over. That outlet is saying, are you thirsty? Good. Come over here. I was sent to deal with that. One outlet. You thirst, he'll quench it. Not with a little bit of water, not with a 64-ounce big gulp, with a river. A river. Not even just a little spring. Come to him. Give yourself to him once for the first time and then again and again and again and again. Always. Remain there. Abide there with him. He has something for you. Someone 
for you. God, the Holy Spirit. God inside of you, the satisfier of your soul. The one you've been looking for. Not this stuff. The one you've been looking for. After Jesus is glorified, referring to the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, after he's glorified, he's going to pour out the Spirit on those who believe. That's what you need, God, inside of you. He does not say, come to me, I'll quench your thirst by giving you bigger, better, and more of all this stuff that all the other outlets offer. Not that. Come to me, I'll give you God. I'm going to go to the cross and be glorified. I'm going to clear away the barriers of sin so that those who believe can have God in them. Come. We're going to talk a lot more about this in chapters 14, 15, and 16 where the Holy Spirit becomes a major issue. Third person of the Trinity. It's introduced here as a, a hopeful promise. Christ makes it possible for God to live in us. Ah, that, that's the thirst quencher. And as I think about this, there... This can be like theoretical, mechanical. How does this work out? A leads to B. Jesus makes this possible. God comes and lives inside of you. God renovates your heart. It can be mechanical at that level. I think there's another level underneath of that that's more like beauty. Think about this. Jesus wants to quench thirst. That's a good thing. Because we're thirsty. Jesus, knowing what sin would do, knowing how sin would cut us off from water, speaking spiritually here, metaphorically, sin would cut us off from water, the river of God we get cut off from. Jesus says, I'm going to come and dig a canal between the two. I want you to drink and to be quenched. It's the kind of God that he is. He's concerned about justice. He's concerned about glory. He's concerned about all kinds of stuff. But he's also concerned about your thirst. He makes it possible for you to not thirst and then says, are you thirsty? Come to me. That's a beautiful thing. I sit and I think about that and I say, thank God he's that kind of God. He doesn't have to be. By a long shot, doesn't have to be. But he is. Praise God. All that he means to be for his people is remarkable. To quench thirst. It's what he means to be, which makes the second point all the more critical, our response. The second main emphasis in this passage lies in the people all throughout it. They're all over the map. Jesus says and does lots of different things, and the people respond like this, all sorts of different ways, just like people today. Jesus comes up, a whole bunch of responses ensue. So here's the second main point. Take care to correctly respond to Jesus. Take care, be careful here to correctly respond. This is critical because it's not just enough that Jesus came to quench thirst. We all, each one of us, individually, personally respond to him in some way or another. And that response, that's the last card played that decides the hand. It's like we're all sitting around the table here. A lot of people play cards. God plays cards, people play cards, and it's, 
You're the last one to play. We're waiting. What are you going to lay down? That's your response. It's important that you respond correctly. You look through this passage and you see a sampling of responses. They're really all kind of warnings to us. Don't be like this. Don't do this. Be careful. Don't go there. First one you see is don't reject him based on a misunderstanding of the facts. Happens a couple times in this passage. People think they know something, but they actually don't. Could this be the Christ? No, we know too much about him. Actually, don't know nearly enough about him. He needs to be from Bethlehem, and he's not. Yes, he is. There are no prophets that come from Galilee. Well, A, he didn't come from Galilee. B, yes, there are. What about Jonah and Nahum? Probably some others, too. Missing the facts here led to some serious consequences. People missed Jesus because they misunderstood the facts. Don't follow them. Don't join them in that. You may have heard a whole bunch of things about Jesus that are not true. And so you may miss the real Jesus. Somehow or another, you may have heard that Jesus is a white, wealthy, American, Republican who only cares about good people. That's not true. Maybe somehow or another you were taught that Jesus is a man who became a God of some sort. It's not true. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. Maybe somehow you heard that what Jesus really taught was that we're supposed to be good people, perform good works and be moral and ethical, and that's how we get saved. It's not true. None of that's true. That Jesus, some compilation over there, that's not the real Jesus, not the Jesus of history, not the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus who saves and pours out the thirst-quenching spirit. Be careful not to misunderstand the facts and so miss him. Harder still, harder than not misunderstanding the facts, is to not miss Jesus or not reject him based on missed expectations. It's related to missing the facts, but it's a little bit different. Folks who were interacting with Jesus had some expectations about what the Christ should be, about what he should do. He's supposed to come and fix things, bring in a new order right now to correct injustice, fix oppression, starting with Rome. Let's get that first. Right now, Rome. Deal with that. And then bring in a vast time of, of peace and prosperity all right now. That's what they were expecting. When he didn't do that, they turned away. But he had a different idea. He taught in power and in wisdom about a kingdom that begins within and one day becomes full and vast in the physical realm. That was his agenda. He is going to deal with that, but just not right now. And he's God. We have to let him have that. That's his prerogative to decide when. We have to let that be in his hands, but people weren't ready for that. And they turned away. Don't miss him. If his plans don't conform to your plans or your timing for your plans. Those things, misunderstanding the facts, differing expectations, those are hard. But they're not as hard as the third one, which is plain old simple pride. Pharisees in verses 40 to 52 show us this in living color. They come off very badly in this passage. They are furious 
at Jesus' challenge to their autonomy and their authority, their right to be in charge of them and of everybody else. He's coming and he's pushing them out of the middle, and they don't like that. So they chase him down to arrest him. And they, every little challenge from the Levite guards, from Nicodemus, they shove them to the side. Nicodemus' simple question is a poignant one. Does the law, he's not a, a fan or a follower of Jesus, he's just fair. Does the law allow us to judge man without first giving him a hearing and listening to what he says? Obvious answer is no, that would be immoral and illegal. Don't bother us with the facts, Nicodemus. The answer is no, he is not the guy. Bring him in, we're going to kill him. Don't follow them into that. There's something inside. Watch out for that. There's something inside of each of us that's lurking behind the misinterpreted facts and the misinterpreted expectations. There's something back inside of there in the fallen human heart that does not like to give in. It's in each of us. It does not like to say, I was wrong, really wrong for a long time, and I now have to change and follow you, Jesus. I have to bow the knee and submit to you. Given all that I've said, all the public positions I've taken, all the things I've done, all the sins that I've committed, that's really hard. It'd be easier just to not do that. Watch out for that. Take care to reject your own pride and to correctly respond to Jesus. Don't blow him off. There's a time coming when he's going to go away. We're going to wish to be with him. We won't be able to be. What is he saying there? He's saying there's a window of opportunity and not a one of us knows when it will fully close for you. Don't presume upon time. Respond correctly to him. Those are all ways that we're not supposed to respond. Turn the tables. How should we respond? How do we respond correctly? Verses 37 and 38. And here Jesus is going to tell you what you should do if you're not yet a Christian and what you should do if you are a Christian, which is a good thing. Because we Christians, we're plugged into the right outlet. We have the Spirit living inside of us. We have access to God. But if we're honest, we still struggle with thirst. Nothing like it used to be, but it's still a problem. Sometimes brief periods, sometimes really long periods, and it's really hard. We're not total strangers to that yet. What are we supposed to do? Well, similar for both. Both the Christian and the non-Christian. Verse 37 has the metaphor, come and drink. Well, verse 38 says, believe. All three are in the present tense again, which means now, constantly, continually, it's an abiding thing. Continuing constant. You need to come to Jesus, drink of Jesus, believe in Jesus, Always, continually, constantly. None of this, I believed in Jesus last year, so I'm good to go. No. It's, I believed for the first time in Jesus last year, and since then I believe, I come, I drink. Constantly, continually. The problem for the non-Christian is that you've never done that yet. Not for the first time, you've never plugged in. And the problem for the Christian is, we tend to treat this as like a battery charger. We plug in, then we unplug and we go wander around the world, checking back in every seven days or so. It's not the case. 
constantly, continually come and drink, always. Let me leave the electricity metaphor and try to make this plain. We're talking about inner heart thirst here. That's the issue. And getting that heart thirst quenched, experiencing the real life. Jesus said that to fix that thirst, you come to him constantly and continually. You drink of him constantly and continually. You believe in him constantly and continually. How do you do that? Well, where does he make himself available? I'm supposed to come to him and drink of him. Where is he? He's not standing right here such that I can come physically to him, which is okay because that was never the issue anyway. Physical proximity was never what Jesus was talking about. There were a whole bunch of people right next to him. The guy who held his arm when he nailed it to the cross was very close to him physically. Never, that was never the point. What he always meant was, come to me in here and in here, get a handle on me, see me, grab me, hold on to me, push me through your whole body like a beverage runs into you. You can't do that without the Bible and without prayer. You come to the Bible, you find out who he is, you see him there, not in a purely intellectual, cognitive sense, I learned five facts about Jesus, but you see him there like, it could be the mechanical Jesus' thirst quencher, or it could be I see him there as a beautiful, caring God. See the difference? This one is mechanical, some facts I can write down in my notes. Jesus quenches thirst, or I can say, marvelous God. Come to the Bible, you see him there, and that then informs, it walks with you all throughout the day. It informs how you act and how you think and how you speak, how you care for people. You're thinking, I have a beautiful God to deliver to people in my speech and in my actions, not some points. I have a God to communicate to. I have a God to communicate with. You take him in through the Bible. You communicate with him with Bible-informed prayer. You drink him in. That's how you do it. It's a little hard to explain because it's not simply intellectual. You can study for a test intellectually. You meet God in the Bible in a really different way. But you have to meet him in the Bible. Does he always show up in the same way uh, on cue? No. But he doesn't show up apart from this book. You have to have this book running through you. Even when you go meet God in the mountains, which I do, which you can, this book is what's running through my mind and informing how I interpret what, what I run into. All kinds of people think they meet God in the mountains, and apart from this book, they come up with some different conclusions. This book runs through my mind as I meet him in nature. I pray in nature in accordance with this. He must too. He makes himself available through very ordinary means. Scripture and Scripture-informed prayer. The Bible. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man or woman. Blessed. We talked about this when we were looking at the psalm. Remember that word blessed? Happy, content, joyous, peaceful. The blessed life. Same thing Jesus is talking about here, the quenched thirst life. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law, the instruction of the Lord. And on this instruction, 
He meditates day and night. He takes it in constantly, continually, day and night, drinking it in always. What's that life end up looking like? He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, whose leaves never wither. That's a thirst-quenched tree. And you can be like that. Jesus was sent to deliver that life to you. Fruit-producing, leaf-never-withering life. Take care how you respond to Him. Come to Him always, continually. Drink Him in always, continually. Believe always, continually. He'll quench your thirst. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.